Hey, Lisa. Hey, Julie. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. So we are um, now in the middle of January. It's January. How did that happen so quickly? <laughs> Although I got to tell you, this has been the longest week. We're January 16th. We're exactly three months out pretty yeah. much from Boston. Yep. Less than 100 days. 95. I saw someone share like on that. social media. Yep. I saw the 100-day countdown yeah. a few days ago. So Super exciting. Um, so first of all, how is your training going this week, Lisa? It is going. We touched on this a little bit last week, but since I just ran a marathon uh, almost two weeks ago now, my kickoff to Boston training is a little bit different than it normally would be. So I'm taking a step back, getting a little more rest, um, shorter, easier runs. Thursday is typically my long run day. But um, today I did a very easy 10 miles, which normally I probably would be doing 14 or 15 by now. But um, and this was my longest, by far my longest run since the, the marathon two weeks ago. And my legs still felt it like I still feel um, my legs feel a little heavy. It was windy out today. So that also kind of it, it felt hard today. So listening to my body, we have some snow coming up possibly this weekend, which here we go back to last weekend. We had beautiful weather for our Lululemon monthly group run. And we all reveled in running in like 60 degree weather outside, but we knew uh, winter weather is coming back and we deal with this every year, kind of juggling our schedules and our runners schedules. Um, so it was windy today, but um, not nothing icy or slippery yet. But you, you uh, modified your schedule a little bit this week because of that forecast. I did. So while I try to run in all the elements, we always tell our runners this and I subscribe to the same belief. I will not run in ice or even a chance of ice. So Saturday, at least as of today, there is some chance of ice. So when I saw that, I kind of looked at the whole week ahead for myself and thought, well, I can finagle doing my long run on Thursday, which I've done a lot lately because of my kids' schedules and such. So um, I did my long run this morning and I did a little over 16 and this was my longest run in a while and I, I felt fine. Um, I also threw in a couple of tempo miles in my long run because generally I do at least uh, one tempo run a week and a long run. And because I'm doing my long run on Thursday. I was afraid if I did some tempo work on Tuesday, I wouldn't have enough recovery time. So I put it together today. And then the rest of my runs this week are easy. So that's something that I do personally to sort of juggle looking at weather and also getting my mileage in. And unfortunately, the one thing I have to compromise when I do um, do a 16 miler on a Thursday morning is my sleep, sleep yeah. because you get I, those miles. I get started super early. I started with Felix this morning, a little before 5am and I finished up, um, with the MT group that I sometimes run with on Thursdays. They're lovely. And I finished up with them, um, got home right around seven 30, just in time to, uh, kind of say goodbye to Ella. I missed Noah, but say goodbye to Ella when she got on the bus and start my work day. And so um, it's tricky because I certainly don't want to burn the candle at both ends, not this early in training, but I just didn't feel there was a better way to do it. So my intent 
is to get to bed early tonight to right. kind of make up for it. You have to do that once in a while because mm-hmm. of outstanding, extenuating circumstances. Yeah. That's okay as long as you're keeping in mind that you do now have to recover and make up for it. And and you mentioned something too about getting your tempo miles. And I think that's really important because we do this with, for a lot of our runners that we coach, our virtual coaching clients. Um, we've had to switch around the schedule for a lot of them this weekend with this eye towards the weather. And when we do that, we're very careful to spread out their harder workouts and their long their long runs, which is considered a harder workout. And those tempo miles or maybe the speed work, when we condense that and we move the long run earlier, we run into that issue of like how far apart will it be? How much recovery will you have between, between the runs? So I think that's why it's really important that we communicate with our runners as to their plans and make sure that we're all on the same page about how they're going to uh, rejigger their schedule to make sure they're not doing too much, too condensed, too close together, because that can happen if you have your speed workout on Tuesday and you're going to move your long run to Thursday. It doesn't give you a lot of recovery. So I think that's important. We do that looking at our schedules and making sure we can, um, you know, also then have some extra sleep time. And now you're freed up on Saturday. I uh, don't have to do your long run. So you can maybe sleep in a little bit later and uh, take it easier on Saturday. But we also do that with with our runners and we've been checking in with folks and making sure that uh, they're squared away with that. So it's really important, I think, to, to pay close attention to when you move something, you know, what are the Absolutely. other effects? And we've had to do that with a lot of people this week. I mean, I think we've had multiple discussions with a, a lot of different runners because it's weather all over the country that is coming this way that people have been dealing with. So there's been a lot of reconfiguring and that's why it's good to have a third party kind of look at your stuff because I mean, even I, I just was doing it myself, but I had to really think about it. And sometimes that's exhausting. So it's nice to have someone kind of look at everything. And you shouldn't feel too like you have to fit it all in. There's no. a runner, you know, we're talking to this morning. So, well, if I don't do my tempo run today and I do the long run instead, where do I put the tempo run? And you know what? So that's okay. Let's maybe put a couple of tempo miles in the long run or you don't have to do the tempo run this week. It's okay. Prioritizing recovery is more important than just getting in and checking off those workouts and getting in those workouts. Right. Because like we talked about last week, the schedule is a guideline and everyone who's training, unless you live in like a place like San Diego and you're training for Boston, everyone who's training is dealing with weather and other variables. Right. And if you're not dealing with weather, you might yeah. be dealing with getting sick. A lot of people getting sick this time of year or just family schedules mm-hmm. or just fatigue. Maybe you're yeah. just tired and you're just not your body's just telling you that it needs a little extra time this week. So I think that's really important too, is that we don't always, when we move things around on runner schedules, we don't always just move them around. Sometimes we take a run out and, and, you know, and and it's okay if that run uh, doesn't get done. We can do it another time. We can pick up next week. It's not, it's not going to make or break your training to miss one workout. And now that we've reconfigured so many people's schedules for this week because of this supposed pending weather, it's probably going to be beautiful on Saturday, right? I wouldn't say beautiful, but (laughs) my guess, so this is my guess, is Uh that any weather is going to start later in the morning or in the afternoon. And if somebody wanted to do their long run on Saturday morning, it's probably going to be fine. Uh But you know what? Doesn't it feel good to have your long run out of the way now? And, And not everyone can do it. You know, work schedules, other schedules, not in like you had to do, you had to wake up super early, get it done. So it's not always possible. And in that case, sometimes we split the runs or sometimes we'll swap recovery weeks and make this a recovery week and then pick up next week. So um, there are other ways to do that. But if you can do it uh, and get it done safely and uh, 
and not compromise too much sleep, it, it feels good. Freeze up the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. So you had mentioned briefly, we had an awesome, beautiful, sunny run um, for our monthly run from the Crown Gaithersburg Lululemon. And that was super fun. Um, a lot of people came out who we had, had hadn't met or hadn't seen in a long time before because the weather was so nice. I mean, I'd love to say that it was because, <laughs> you know, they wanted to come to the run, but I, I we think- deserve that though. All of oh, our gosh. runs last year, all of our monthly runs, we had rain, we had freezing cold weather, we had winds, yes. we never had a beautiful weather day. We deserve that. We totally deserved it. Um, so it was really great to see everyone. Everyone was in a great mood because of the sunshine. And um, it was also fun to hear how many people listen to this podcast. And um, we just have a quick favor to ask our listeners. And that is, if you are inclined, if you could do a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's not because, and we've said this before, it's not because we we want all these compliments. It's, it's embarrassing. It's not like we're saying, review us, review us. But it's because the more reviews we have, the more that Apple will or any podcast platform will say, if you like this podcast, try this one. And that's based on numbers of reviews. So last time I checked, we have over 50 reviews. So thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to do that. Um, so if you're inclined, please um, rate or review us. It really helps. And share it. If you have any friends who you think would find this helpful, we would so appreciate it. We don't do this for profit. We just do it because we enjoy talking to each other and you, and we really feel it's important to share information that we find helpful to ourselves and to our runners, to everyone out there. It's just something we believe in and we're really enjoying the whole process. It's been so fun to meet runners and connect with runners from all around the world just because of the podcast. So, so fun. That's been great. So I want to I want to mention uh, quickly um, some kudos for our runners. Speaking of runners yes. and runners from around the country and around the world, we had some um, really great uh, great successes and uh, we had some races this past weekend. So um, we had one of our runners. I love, I love this story and it's not unique. We had several runners who had a very similar story last year. Uh, we have a runner, Lindsay, who lives in um, Charlotte and we love working with Lindsay, super talented runner. She came to us last year when she had signed up for the New York City Marathon as part of a the Let Me Run charity, which is a great organization that encourages boys to start running early, like it's sort of like um, girls on the run, but for boys. And she had signed up for that. And she had had, she had done a few marathons before, but always ran into issues with um, her GI and GI problems and with um, breathing. And she just thought she wasn't having the best marathon experience. And she wasn't looking to hit a certain time or anything like that. Her, her, her marathon, her, her marathon PR before was a 354, which was very respectable, but based on her shorter distance time. Well, this yeah, yeah, gets, yeah. So she really her goal with that marathon though was just to have be able to train, um, train the right way and have a good experience running the race, not run into hitting the wall. She would always say she'd hit the wall at you know mile twenty, which is common, and she just wanted to have a good race. And as we coached her and saw her, you know, her, her we like to have our runners do um, shorter races while we're coaching them just to get a check on their fitness. Uh, we saw that you know, she was, she's a really talented runner. And we thought that based on those races, uh, that she could qualify for Boston. So she needed a 335 to qualify for Boston. And we like to then do maybe a five minute cushion, but, but we thought based on her shorter distance races that she should be able to do that. So we decided that that was going to be the target for the New York city marathon. And she was in great shape, had a great race. And at about mile 24.8, I think it was maybe about a little over a mile from the finish, 
she um, got really nauseous, really dizzy to the point where she had to stop and get medical attention in a medical tent a mile from the finish for 30 minutes. To her credit, they let her get back out on the course and finish the race, clearly not in the time she wanted and not in the time she was on track for. So it was disappointing for her, but we regrouped after. We talked about what happened. We figured out that it might have to do with her nutrition and that we think she may have a really higher metabolism, metabolize her glycogen faster, and um, also the electrolytes. So we tweaked, decided she decided she wanted to try again. So we picked a marathon far enough out, which was the Charleston Marathon this past weekend, and uh, that, that gave her time to recover and rebuild carefully. And during that rebuild, we focused on nutrition. We focused on training her body to take in a little bit more carbs uh, during during the run. Uh, we She uh, tried some different nutrition. She tried some different uh, electrolyte supplementation, and we tweaked that and felt pretty confident that that was going to help what, prevent... What- Explain our listeners what she was doing before and what was tweaked. Like how many, how often was she taking? Yeah. So she was taking what you know what we typically advise and like runners typically take was about thirty grams mm-hmm. of carbs per thirty to forty minutes, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less, maybe a little, maybe it's closer to twenty five every forty mm-hmm. minutes, um, and uh, and no protein or anything like that, nothing with protein and just pretty straightforward goo chews. Um, and what we decided is that maybe a little bit more, more along the lines of 40 grams for carbs per half hour, so that would get her up to about 70 to 80 grams of carbs per hour, might work without overloading her system. And um, she tried a celerade, which has some protein in it, which we thought might make a difference. And we also made sure she was on top of the electrolyte supplementation with salt stick tabs to really stay on top of that. And she was very disciplined and very structured about that. And she went to Charlotte and she executed again and she followed that nutrition plan. I'm I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. Charleston. And she not only qualified, again, she needed a, we would say safely a 330, but she finished in 323. Felt great and felt strong the entire way and paced well. And it was such a great, great reward to see that she had the, she always had the potential just sometimes things don't work out and you're not able to achieve your potential. And this happened with two runners last year for us. Same thing. They ran their goal race and something, one had a virus, one kind of lost motivation on a course that was not uh, a great, you know, a great Actually, motivating course. Four runner. Maybe more. Yeah, than, okay. Many, so yeah. We've had several where yeah. they ran their goal race and it just didn't pan out the way we knew that mm-hmm. they could race in ideal conditions and they knew they could race. And we regrouped. We made sure they had plenty of recovery time, maybe tweaked a few things, worked on some mental mm-hmm. strategies. Because after a race like that where you don't achieve your goal, mentally that can take a toll. So we worked on mental strategies and they all came back and they all smash through their goals in the second one. So I think it's just an important, important lesson in that your goal race is your goal race, but it's not all or nothing. And it's, if you don't hit your goal, that that's an achievable goal. That's a reasonable achievable goal in that race. It doesn't mean that you're not capable of it. It may just mean that the conditions didn't work out in your favor and you can to an extent regroup and make sure you have enough recovery time and correct and change course a little bit. And, and then sometimes it takes a little bit of tweaking. And, and Lindsay had said to me after the race, she said, you know, I don't think New York was a, was, you know, I don't look bad on it, look back on it poorly. She said, I think I needed that race. I needed that race to understand what, you know, what I needed to tweak. I needed that race 
uh, to understand that I could do it. And that was just part of the process. So I thought that was a really healthy way of looking at it. And now she's qualified for Boston 2021. So that was a big success from this past weekend. I love how she looked at her. It wasn't a failure by any means, but for lack of a better word, her failure is just a way to sort of serve a purpose so that she could part of the process achieve her success. And, and to your point, we've had so many runners and ourselves where, you know, you don't hit a goal and you try again and try again doesn't necessarily mean six weeks later, like what Lindsay did. It can be six months later. It can, it, and it may not always work out where, you know, you tie it up in a bow. Oh, I ran this race in early September. It was really hot. So I waited two months in my same cycle and ran a race in November, December, and I did okay, but I didn't get the PR I wanted. I guess that doesn't work for me. No, that's all fitness in the bank. And that can be used toward doing some shorter stuff in the spring, um, changing up um, some workouts to achieve new goals and different distances, and then taking that fitness again with a lot of recovery and trying again for the marathon, if that's something that's important. Training is never wasted. Never. That's the most important part of it. The race is sort of the celebration Mm -hmm. at the end, the cherry on top, but the race, the the training uh, and the process are always really the most important part. And that's always still going to be there. Yes. And I think it's exhausting when, um, and we've, we've talked about this a lot, but it's worth repeating when you're just goal oriented and not process oriented, it's exhausting because I mean, that's not what life is all about. Life is about living. And while we all have goals, the day to day is what makes your life fulfilled. So it's not the big stuff. It's how you live your life. So why can't we correlate that to running where it's the day-to-day stuff? Enjoy it's, the process. Yes. <laughs> it's the friends you run with or the workouts that you enjoy or the sunshine or the fresh air or the, the hard- stress that you release. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you're not defined by one day, one no. race, three hours, four hours, two hours, one hour, whatever it is. You're, you're not that, that doesn't define the experience that you had leading up to it. So I thought that was just a really, uh, I, I was, we were really proud of her and happy for her and happy her husband could be there to celebrate with her and her parents could be there. And she has two young boys that were at home but weren't with her, but she set a really good example for them of persevering and keeping a positive mindset and working towards your goals. Absolutely. Awesome story. Love it. Um, so, and then also over the weekend, we had some Disney runners and our Disney runners were not out there trying to get a PR. And I think that's a great point too. Not every goal is about getting the best time. Um, Sometimes, and and understandably with Disney races, it's about training appropriately to avoid injury. So we had- So that you can enjoy the race. Yeah. Disney of all races is an experience. Disney is not, you don't go run Disney for time, for sure. You go run Disney to experience it. And you, like you said, you want to be able to experience it and enjoy the process and not be struggling towards the end. Yes. So uh, we had a, f- a few runners and they they all had great experiences. And one in particular did the Dopey, which is <laughs> not the Goofy. The Goofy is a half Goofy's marathon. Goofy, but the Dopey is really Dopey. Half marathon followed by the marathon. The, the Dopey is 5K, 10K, half marathon. In four marathon. days. Yeah, four, four days. So. And, and I've done the Dopey before and I fully agree that it is dopey. And I will be totally honest and say that we never encourage our runners to do that. It is not, um, especially Disney, you wake up, you have to wake up about two thirty three in the morning to get, you have to be at the race site by four o'clock for the five o'clock start. They, they do them early so they can get people out, you know, out of the parks before the parks open. So one day of waking up at two thirty in the morning and going to a race is hard. Two days, pretty challenging. 
three days get starts to get unhealthy and four days can be really dangerous, especially when your last race is a marathon. So um, we have one client that we adore and who is an amazing, accomplished Ironman athlete who likes to do, loves endurance. And she really wanted to do dopey. And we've worked with her on how to, how to make sure to finish that healthy and the strategy, the race strategy for finishing that healthy and the mental strategy, because I'll tell you, by the time you get to that fourth day and you're waking up again to go out and run a marathon, when you are tired from three days of a 5k, 10k half marathon, that's where the mental game comes in. And she finished, she said, I felt like I had a strong mental game and that is so much of it. And, and she had a great time and our other runners too. We love getting the pictures from our Disney runners because they're with the characters and they're, uh, they're fun. It's such a fun experience and people dress up. So you're right. Not every race is about hitting a PR or a BQ. Sometimes it's about the experience and, and we coach runners for that as well. And you want to enjoy, enjoy the experience and be prepared for the distance. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, speaking of process and results, we're really excited to bring on, um, one of our two co-authors. co-authors of the book rebound, train your mind to bounce back stronger from sports injuries. The co-author is Cindy Kuzma. We've talked about Cindy before and we'll do a formal introduction, but we wanted to bring her on today not to talk about the book as much because we're we're actually hosting an event locally and where she and her um, is going to talk about the mental strategies that are listed in Rebound. And we'll touch on it, but we wanted to bring Cindy on because Cindy is a Boston expert, not just because she's run the race several times, but also because she is a writer for multiple sports publications, most um, notably for our purposes, Runner's World has written so many articles and we've shared a lot of them on our social media pages, not even knowing she was the author initially because she's such a good writer and really digs deep with her topics. So um, we are going to interview her next and have a great week, Lisa. Thanks, you too. Hopefully we uh, avoid any messy weather on Saturday and we can just sleep in in the morning and enjoy the weekend. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Cindy Kuzma. Cindy is a freelance writer, author, and podcaster in Chicago. She writes regularly for Runner's World, Chicago Magazine, and for many Chicago-based media companies, including asweatlife.com, where she's a contributing editor. She is also the co-host of the podcast, We Got Goals. She's also written for Men's Health and New York Times, Outside Online, Health.com, Women's Health, USA Today, and so many other digital and print outlets. Her latest book is Rebound, Training Your Mind to Bounce Back Stronger from Sports Injuries, which she co-wrote with Carrie Jackson Cheadle, a sports psychologist. Cindy and Carrie are traveling the country right now promoting their book, and we are so pleased that they are coming to our 10-year anniversary event to talk about the book. Cindy will be there representing and talking about the importance of rebounding. Cindy also, in addition to her podcast, moderates the Injured Athletes Club Facebook group. This is a terrific group. If you are in the unfortunate situation of being injured, definitely join this Facebook group. It's very helpful. Lastly, Cindy's very busy. She is the co-author with her husband, Matt Kuzma, of the Marathon Spectator Guide, which is aimed to help those who, like Matt, tirelessly follow their family of runners around 26.2 courses. Cindy is a member of the American Society of Journalists, 
authors and Chicago science writers. And lastly, she is an RRCA certified run coach and USA track and field coach level one. Welcome, Cindy. Hi, Julie and Lisa. I'm so glad to be here. Last time I saw you, Cindy, was when we both ran a marathon together. It was really fun. We did the last chance to BQ.2 in September, and I had the chance to meet some of your running buddies and your husband, and it was just really great to be in Chicago with you. So um, I feel like we're old friends now, and I'm excited that you're coming to DC to be a part of our anniversary event in a few weeks. So thank you so much for coming. And I know, um, and Lisa knows that our runners in our community will just really enjoy hearing from you about your new book, Rebound. Well, I'm really glad that I get the chance to make the trip. Um, I've thought so highly of you two for years as coaches and humans and runners, and I'm really looking forward to meeting some of your community in person. I have to just say, too, that the last time I saw you was in Boston when Julie was injured. And I have mm -hmm. to say that your Injured Athletes podcast and your you, you as a resource, I know, was so valuable to Julie and her opportunity to talk to you when she was there. And that was a, you know, it was a, a tough trip, I think, for, for both of us, but particularly for her because she was there and not able to run. But I know that you've been an amazing resource for her. So thank you for that and for everything you've contributed not only to the broader running community, but particularly particularly to those that are injured and struggling with coming back from injury. Yes. Thank you for saying that, Lisa. That was really nice. All right. So we wanted to talk to you today, Cindy, a little bit about injury in your book, but we, we really wanted to dig deep for this podcast and just talk to you about your expertise as a runner and also a writer um, about running in general and particularly Boston. So we wanted to kick it off and ask you, can you talk to us and tell us what came first in your life, your running or your writing about running? And how did that happen? That's a, yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this. It's, I was fun to reflect back because uh, I haven't been thinking much about these specific questions lately. So I, um, the writing definitely came first. Uh, I was not an athlete as a child in any way or in school or anything like that. I mean, the most athletic thing that I did in high school and college was marching band. Um, but I had <laughs> I was on the drill written... team. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's more athletic even, it but, totally um, is. I had strong arms. That was about it, yeah. but yes, <laughs> it totally yeah. is. Yeah. But I know, um, and my mom will tell me, she still has books that I've written from a young age, um, mostly and when I was a kid, they were about cats. But, um, so, but I went to uh, undergrad and graduate school for journalism. And it was actually, um, while I was doing my master's degree in journalism, I had gotten married, oh, graduated college, gotten married, started graduate school, all moved to Chicago, all within a year. And I wasn't really taking care of my body. Uh, and I actually had a strange incident where I like stepped off a curb and twisted my ankle and I was on crutches for a while. And that during that experience, I was just got to the point where I was like, once I can walk again, I need to, to move more. And that's when I started running. And so that was right about the time that I was starting my career as a writer and a journalist. And it just so happened that I was able to blend those two into, um, into a career. And I'm so grateful for that. And how did you decide to um, go out on your own and, um, do writing independently versus working for a publication? How did that pan out? Because I think there's a lot of people listening that 
would love to do what you're doing. So explain a little bit about what you do and how that specifically came about with respect to your writing. Sure. So I'm a freelance writer and author and podcaster, which means I'm completely self-employed. So I do a lot of writing for Runner's World, a lot of writing for Chicago Magazine and some other publications that are kind of my consistent, I would say, clients or or outlets. But um, I worked uh, for about... um, a little more than 10 years uh, full-time on staff. I I never actually worked at a big magazine. Um, I worked at the American Medical Association doing media relations for medical journals. I worked at a newsletter company. Um, I worked at a number of jobs where it was always writing about health and fitness and similar topics, but but not for like a consumer magazine. But I always freelanced on the side. Um, And a about uh, about that time, about nine years ago, when I decided to make the jump to freelance, I had an editor at a newsletter company that I had written for. She got a job at Men's Health, and she had always liked my writing at this newsletter company, and so it took kind of took me with her, asked me if I wanted to start writing for Men's Health, and her name was Amy Rushlow, and she's uh, just been an incredible friend and mentor throughout um, my career. But that's how I kind of broke into these bigger publications, and then Men's Health at the time was published by Rodale, which also published Runner's World. So once I started writing for Men's Health, um, I started connecting with other editors and pitching those publications, and that's uh, eventually I got to the point where I was doing enough of that on the side that I realized I could probably make it a full-time career, and made the leap. That's incredible. And what's what's really interesting is that did you find that you're running? I mean, you, you talked about how you started getting fit, but as you started writing more for running related publications, did did that coincidentally or do you think it was more intentionally dovetail with you starting to train for marathons? Um, I mean, I think it was intentional for sure. I mean, Runner's World had always been a dream publication. So when I had the chance to to write for them, I was thrilled. Um, and I had already been running for a few years. So I ran my first marathon in 2002 and started writing for Runner's World in about 2013. So it, it was a journey uh, to, to get to that point, to get to where I felt like I had um, the, <laughs> the writing chops and the expertise and the connections to to do that. But I would say it was it was intentional for sure. Okay. So you you were running for quite some time uh, marathon distances before you became a freelancer. Got it. Correct. And, yeah. And how do you feel like your running and your experience as a runner helped you write and report your stories better? Do you feel like that gave you an advantage? How, how do you how do you think that helped you or, or formed your approach to writing? I think it's uh, been a huge benefit. I mean, in part just because um, I. I always say that the journalists don't have questions, they have story ideas. So whenever I had a situation that I wasn't sure about or a training question or uh, an injury related question, um, I would pitch that as a story idea. And then I would get to talk to really smart people about it. So it gave me that, uh, the ideas uh, continues to give me those ideas and gives me that firsthand experience of what other athletes are going through, which helps me understand the kinds of information that they're looking for. And certainly understand the running community and the topics and issues that are that are relevant and timely, I'm sure. So looking looking back and, and you have a very, very, you know, illustrative career and you've had you've covered so much. And so this is probably a difficult question and hard to narrow down. But looking back out of all the the, the stories that you've written running related, what what are the most memorable or, or have had the most impact on you? Yeah, I mean, there are a few that jump out. Um, one is actually pretty early on in my um, relationship with Runner's World. Uh, I So I ran the Boston Marathon in 2013. And um, 
when the bombings happened and right uh, immediately after it, I mean, the, the next print issue of Runner's World, they had already basically had the whole thing laid out and ready to ship out. And they scrapped the entire thing and started from scratch and did an entire issue centered around what had happened. And my editor at the time, Katie Neitz, who doesn't work there anymore, but she's still, she was just amazing. She assigned me an article about um, how so, sort of the cognitive dissonance. She wanted me to talk to runners who had a, a good race that day um, how they were processing the fact that they had a really positive experience laid on top of a really negative experience and how uh, I talked to also some sports psychologists about how to handle that. And I mean, for obvious reasons, um, it is something I was incredibly proud of. I was in a very emotional place myself. And I would say that working on that and talking with other athletes about that was a really helpful in processing that both for them and for me. And I was really proud of that when it came out in print, especially because I had to do it very quickly at a time when I was working through all these emotions myself. So that, that is always a big one. Um, but, uh, I remember that article. We didn't know you yet in 2013, but we also were there in 2013. And I remember reading that article because we, we absolutely had that, dissonance, that cognitive dissonance, because the the race itself was so separate in our minds from what had transpired just minutes after. And not only that, but I remember, I remember that article as well. And I remember thinking how true that rang that we, when we first finished and we were all together, uh, our group from Montgomery County, Maryland, we were all together uh, at Fire and Ice, which is right near the finish line. And how everyone was so focused on their race and their time and how they did and who PR'd and who you know, what, what everyone did. And then in a split second, no none cared. of that mattered at all. And how it was so separate, all of a sudden the two experiences were so separate. So I, that was a, and, and that's so interesting to us. And so meaningful to us that somebody who wrote that story experienced that. And that's probably why we remember the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So any other articles that you remember that were really um, special to you? I mean, anytime I get the chance to talk with an athlete who's overcome an obstacle, um, I, I feel grateful. Um, I, another one that I just wrote this year was um, I talked to Amelia Boone, who's, you know, if if your listeners don't know her, they probably do, but she's an incredible uh, obstacle course racer, uh, ultra runner, and a really fantastic human being. And she announced earlier, or I guess this is last year now in 2019, that she had been battling an eating disorder for years and had decided to talk about it publicly. Um, and so I was able to talk with her right after that and write an article about what that process was like for her to disclose that and also how other people could help in that situation. What are some good things to say and to not say to another person or another athlete you might know in that situation? So it felt really gratifying to be able to connect with her on that and also to share something that could be helpful for other people. When you wrote that article, was it hard for you? I mean, Amelia has been very open about her eating disorder. Uh, she wrote a beautiful piece about her recovery. And you obviously read that before you wrote the article. Was it hard for you initially when you first started talking to her to ask her personal questions about it? Or how was that for you? Well, I had the good fortune of having talked to Amelia before. So we actually interviewed her for our book, Rebound, and she was has been on our podcast. In fact, she was the very first guest on our podcast, the Injured yes. Athletes Club. So I had a, an existing relationship with her, mm -hmm. which which made it easier. Um, I mean, it, these things are always difficult, but that's part of my job. And that's part of what I hone as my craft is the ability to have these difficult conversations in a way that's 
that's sensitive. And it's hard, especially because I'm a journalist. I mean, I, I do consider Amelia a friend, but it's different than the kind of conversation I might have with someone in an inner circle of friendship with me because I am then going to be writing about it. So uh, it's something that I think about a lot and and really work on. Yeah. I mean, that's a tough one too, because you had her on the podcast, she's in the book, and then she reveals something so personal that wasn't included yeah. um, when you initially interviewed her on the podcast. So that also must have been sort of something a little bit challenging to navigate. I'm sure that you, you were very thoughtful about it. I have no doubt, but I'm sure it was something you had to think about a lot in terms of how to approach it. Yeah, absolutely. And and with Amelia, especially, I mean, she's just so wonderful at being open and honest about these things. So sometimes I find that the best way to deal with it is to just talk about it. Like, you know, she talked to me a lot about how she felt that she had to hold this thing back, but how liberating it felt now that she was talking about it. So just being open and having that conversation and saying, you know, if you don't want to answer this, um, I understand, but to ask those difficult questions of why didn't you talk about it earlier? And you know, would you do it differently if you were doing it again? Um, I think it's it's important to be open and honest about those things. Love it. It's so true. And when writing all of these articles, and you you have such a prolific resume, are there consistent lessons that you've learned yourself um, when you write about, for example, professional runners and coaches over the years? Everyone has a different approach, but do you find that there's some consistencies among all of these different men and women that you've had the opportunity to interview? That's such a good question. Um, I think that, you know, part of the answer to your question is in your question, and it's just consistency. I mean, the people who have the most success over the longest term seem to be those who are consistent in their training and their habits. But uh, I'll say, too, that um, you're right that people have so many different approaches to performance and health. Um, and the best athletes and coaches seem to be the ones that never stop learning and, and don't assume they know everything. And, and I would certainly put you two in this category as, as athletes and coaches. Um, oh, you're always, you. <laughs> um, you know, exploring new options and, you know, and that people know that the people who do well seem to know that like no one method or piece of advice works for everyone. So they're kind of open to new ideas and willing to test things out and then pay attention to whether that is something that works for them or not, and then incorporate it or dismiss it uh, based on their personal results and not what other people have to say about it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. And have you personally incorporated some of these lessons into your training over the year and have, have you found it changed your running? Um, I mean, consistency for sure has always been something that's important to me in running and and writing. Um, so I have, you know, like I have a, a corporation for my writing and the name of it is actually Carenza Corporation. Like most people don't know that or see that it's not like a public facing name, but that means consistency in Italian. Um, and I picked oh. it for that reason because... Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, that has been the bedrock of everything. And um, even when I go through injuries or other setbacks, um, just showing up every day and even when things are hard... Um, you know, being, uh, being consistent in my approach has been really helpful. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, that sort of, uh, curiosity and self experimentation, you know, I get to write about a lot of cool new ideas and things. And I try to, um, you know, if something sounds intriguing to me, I try it, but I always, uh, am sort of paying attention to how it makes me feel and how it makes me perform. And, and then not just kind of getting caught up in, in a, in a latest hyper craze, but really paying attention to whether it's something that works for me or not. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and what, you know, shifting gears just a little bit, uh, social media has really come to play a huge role in 
in how we get our information, how we read your articles, how we uh, you know hear about news, how we discuss news. How, how do you feel about social media and its role, both in your writing and in uh, you know the broader running community? Yeah, it certainly has an impact. And I, I'm also curious to know how you feel it's changed uh, things for your athletes. But um, but from my perspective, I mean, it's certainly changed um, journalism. I think, you know, there's always going to be a place for professional storytellers and especially for journalists, like people who are kind of willing to ask harder questions or even just less obvious ones and, and tell a story from the outsider's perspective. But, but I'm I appreciate the way that athletes at all levels are able to tell their own stories more using social media. And I think that's really important. I mean, it's also really useful as a journalist because you can learn a lot about an athlete from, you know, what they actually post and also from their like overall approach to social media. Um, you know, it's, and I, I think at the elite level, it's kind of helped athletes build fan bases, which is good because, um, you know, it just gives them more of a personality and that that helps fans connect with the sport. Um, but yeah, you know, on the flip side, it adds an entirely new set of demands and, and challenges and um, does kind of open the door to a comparison trap that I think can be detrimental to athletes at all levels. So like anything else, I think it's a it's a matter of engaging with it carefully and, um, you know, paying attention to how it makes you feel and where it benefits you and where it doesn't and knowing that you can take a personal approach to it. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I agree. I think I think it's definitely we have to take ownership and and be responsible for how we consume and use social media. It's mm -hmm. the onus has to be on us. Um, but I, I'm curious as to how you feel about it and how it's impacted how people are approaching their running and training, because you're not only a writer, you're also a runner, you're also a coach and, and you've watched firsthand this evolution. You started at runner's world um, where that's the, main source where everybody got their information with respect to running. And now suddenly runner's world is one of many resources, mm -hmm. thanks to social media and podcasts and other um, mediums. But given that, do you, do you think that it dilutes? Uh, I don't mean for this to be a leading question, but do you think it sometimes dilutes what is important and what isn't? Do you think that it's sometimes causes runners to focus on the wrong things or the right things. Do you have any comments about that? Information overload. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yes, I think it certainly can. I mean, again, just like uh, anything else, I think there are just pros and cons to it. You know, like uh, I think there are so many ways in which it's good that information is out there. And I think a lot of the things that we've seen happening lately in terms of runners coming forward with stories of eating disorders and stories of abuse and finding this connection and community, like would it be possible without social media? I don't think. So I think it can give people strength if, if used the right way. But I do think it it does require you to be more critical in your consumption and to really judge where something is coming from. And sometimes it is a lot harder to tell. So I, I definitely see the downside of it too. Um, so I, I, yeah, I can't answer it with like a one, yes, it's good or yes, it's bad. You know, it's like, I, I see both effects and just, I think we need to continue having these conversations about it and and thinking critically about its role in, in the running community as a whole and in our lives as runners individually too. And as a, as a journalist and someone who looks into stories and researches stories and really gets the true stories, do you see a disconnect between the stories and the kind of the truth that you're finding and social media often? 
Um, I mean, I definitely think that the social media can be a bit of a highlight reel. And again, that's another reason that I think um, there always will be a role for journalists and storytellers. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think you do have to sort of consider that someone's social media persona is probably a little bit different from their, their what's actually going on in their lives. And I think that's one of the reasons that I do uh, write about injury and think about injury and, and like writing about it is because people d aren't as open and don't talk about those things as much. And I think it's that can be um, detrimental because then you do start to feel isolated and alone. So I do find, you know, a lot of times you'll see, say, an elite athlete kind of go a little bit dark or, uh, or, you know, they'll come out with an injury later when they were posting happy training <laughs> um, photos. Mm -hmm. And so it's just something that, um, that I do see happen. And I do hope that that regular runners kind of keep or every all runners kind of keep in mind as they're consuming the social media. Well, we, uh, we so appreciate that you came. I don't, I don't know exactly how you and Carrie came up with the idea to focus on injury, but it's really taken off and it's it's quite brilliant because your supportive Facebook group and the book and just your general approach to injury and your writing, it's definitely become sort of a, you become an expert in it. And it's something that happens to all runners. And now by you and Carrie doing this work, it's it's created a space for people to talk about where there isn't shame in it. And I think a lot of runners feel when they get injured initially, embarrassed or they feel isolated, like, isolated yeah, for sure. And to have a community that you've created for, for runners, whether professional or amateur is it's really, really helpful. So to that end, talk to us and tell us, how did you and Carrie come up with the idea to start a podcast, write a book and start a group about injury? Sure. So, I mean, this was kind of a personal, uh, passion of mine. I guess, I don't know if passion is the right word. It came from personal experience, having uh, gone through quite a few injuries myself. I've had four stress fractures, um, Achilles tendinopathy, high hamstring tendinopathy. So it was uh, something I was thinking a lot about and experiencing frequently. And so therefore I started writing about it. And Carrie was kind of a go-to source for this um, many times. And so she and I had been uh, in touch on and off, you know, doing interviews uh, where I interviewed her for various publications. And um, back in in 2017, she and I had been thinking that I wanted to work on a book project. And then she had put kind of a vague post on social media that she was thinking about working on another book. She has um, she had written a book prior that she'd self-published on top of your game. And I wondered if she might be thinking about writing a book for injured athletes. And so I followed up with her and we talked and, and I kind of proposed that we collaborate on it. And uh, she was planning a book retreat for herself in Asheville, North Carolina. And we had never met in person, but I invited myself on it. And uh, <laughs> so the first time we met in person was in Asheville, North Carolina. And I think it was like May of 2017. And we kind of, you know, felt each other out and, and one, you know, talked about whether we could work together in this way. And we developed the, the outline that became the book Rebound um, there during that week. And I went to a conference a couple of weeks later and started pitching the idea to uh, publishers and, and agents. So I think, you know, it came out of her work. She's um, a certified mental performance consultant, and she's worked with injured athletes for years on the psychological aspects of injury and has also um, uh, 
run athlete support groups at a collegiate level for injured athletes. So it was a passion of hers to kind of uh, scale that to a bigger audience to take what she was able to do with athletes one-on-one or in a small group situation to a bigger community of athletes. And um, so it had been her idea for a long time and I saw the need for it too. And so we came together to make it happen. And the podcast was like a way to start getting the word out before the book was officially published and has also been a way for us to continue talking about it now that the book is published and to continue um, hearing new voices of athletes who have been through this or who are going through this. How, how long of a process was it to write the book? How long did that take? Um, so it was about a year to uh, to kind of to get the deal to write the book and then about another year to actually write it. Um, and then it came out in October. So um, another six months or so to, to get it published. So it, it's a, it was been a lengthy process. And in that year that you were actually writing the book, you were doing, we assume like all the interviews and, and, and talking to people, what, what were your big takeaways or insights that you, you had after or during and after that, that process of interviewing and talking to so many injured athletes, if you can highlight some. Absolutely. So I talked to more than 40 athletes for the book, which uh, for one thing, I thought, oh my gosh, this is this is a lot. And it, I thought a lot about scheduling <laughs> and all that. <laughs> uh, but one, there were two key things that, that struck me. Um, one was that athletes who had been through injuries, even really severe injuries that, that I interviewed for this book, nearly all of them said something along the lines of, it was the worst thing I've ever been through. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I don't want it ever happen to me again, but I'm so grateful that it did because yep. I took something important away from it. So Julie's I mean, sitting here nodding her head vigorously. Like, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Julie, you've, you've shared that, that before. And I think it's uh, such uh, an indicator of how injury really can be an opportunity, even if it's hard to think of it that way at first. Um, the other big takeaway, I mean, really, there are many, but the other thing that um, was was a real eye-opener for me was, again, nearly every athlete said some version of everything happens for a reason. And um, I, I initially, like, sort of have a visceral negative reaction to that phrase. Um, I'm not the kind of person that believes, you know, you've that bad things happen to you because of a specific reason, like that wasn't something that resonated with me. But the more I thought about it, and the more I talked to athletes about it, um, I think that it's what that really means is not that um, that things are like preordained, right? That like this bad thing was supposed to happen to you. Um, I think what it what it means is that we make reason out of these obstacles that we face. And it's that ability to shift the storyline that really enables you to come out of it on the other side, stronger and more grateful for it. So that's, that's kind of like a, a squishy, like high level thing, but I, it, it's been really helpful to me. And I, I think of that phrase totally differently now. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and that you saw that kind of across the board, which is, is very, is very telling. Mm -hmm. And taking away from that, and all of the information that you have gained from your podcast and book. Can you give just one piece of advice to those who are injured right now and listening to you? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is, um, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's, I think that the really the most 
helpful thing that anyone who is first injured can do is to accept that it's a difficult thing to go through and that there is a psychological aspect to it and that it's normal to be upset and angry and guilty and ashamed and also relieved. And I mean, there's a whole roller coaster of emotions and those are all totally normal. And it's, you know, if you don't allow yourselves to feel those and move through them, um, you're, you're really going to have a hard time. I think you can easily get stuck in those negative emotions if you don't um, honor them. So that's really um, the, the first big thing I would say. And the second big thing I would say is that um, you're an athlete and recovery is now your sport. And all of those resources that you had been putting into training and competing, you can now put into your recovery. And that can make a big difference in the trajectory and really give you the opportunity to rebound, to bounce back stronger. And um, so it's it's hard work, but you can use this as an opportunity. Love that. You are in recovery. You're injured and recovery is your sport. I love that. Mm -hmm. It's like, or as Julie likes to say, get your PR in recovery. Yeah, it's awesome. Absolutely, I love that. yeah. And yeah. what piece of advice would you give to those who are trying to support an injured runner, whether it's a loved one, friend, running partner? Oh my gosh, yes. This is a great question because it's so many people struggle. Um, I think that uh, I would say, you know, especially if you are a, a partner, like someone who is going to be interacting with this injured person on a regular basis, um, you know, try not to make assumptions about what that person needs. You know, if you're in doubt about the kind of support that that, that person is looking for, ask, because so often we find that, um, it, you know, people who are trying to support someone who's injured and they might have the best intentions, but they might just say something that strikes that that injured athlete completely in the wrong way, or they might offer something that that's not what that person needs. And there can be a mismatch and that can really build resentment, which is not helpful to anyone. Uh, so I think thinking about the fact that that athletes need different kinds of support and they need different things at different times. So, you know, just being sensitive and, and asking that person what they might need, what you can offer them that will be most helpful to them is, is a really good place to start. And that applies to anything. I mean, if someone's struggling with, with whether it's any it, challenge, yeah, any challenge, mm -hmm. I think that's terrific advice. Yeah. Uh, shifting, uh, shifting away from injured athletes and towards those who are knock on wood healthy right now and preparing for Boston. You yourself have run, run Boston and have lots of experiences in Boston, spectating Boston, uh, interviewing runners who have run Boston. What are some of your tips for training for and or running the Boston Marathon? Any that kind of stick out in your head? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, for one thing, listen to Julie and Lisa because they have tons of accumulated <laughs> wisdom on this. Um, I was just listening to the first episode and just the 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 idea that you give a checklist for people of what to be doing, yes. like even really early in their training process is huge. Um, I think that I would say, I mean, for one thing is just to be patient, um, both with your training and and with your race. Um, this course rewards patience, that's for sure. Um, and I think we really saw that in 2018 when um, from the elite runners on down, um, people who didn't, uh, and that's the year that the weather was so terrible. Yes. We had the freezing wind and, and downpours the whole race. And I think that people who weren't patient, who went out as fast as they might have gone if the weather was ideal, those were the people who um, bonked and then had to walk and then had to drop because they got hypothermia. <laughs> so yes. it's an extreme example. But um, because of the downhill at first and the rolling hills later on, it's really in the energy around this race. I mean, you you all talk about this all the time, but it's really easy to start too fast. And this is a, a course that um, makes that a particularly bad idea. Um, 
Another thing that I, I would um, advise is, and again, you talk about this a lot, but it's just to practice the timing. Um, there's such a, a different rhythm to the Boston Marathon. It's so different from any other race because you are starting later. It's on a Monday. You have a bus ride. Um, so I actually, I wrote an article about this one time. I have a really... Um, kind of bananas uh, preparation ritual that I go through where I actually take a long run and practice the timing of it where I like get up the same time I would get up on race day. I like sit in my recliner and pretend that I'm on the bus. Um, and then I, um, I, I do, like, love that. Article. I thought you were going to say, the, yeah. say you took a bus somewhere, just got on like the public bus and wrote it. I, 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 <laughs> we will link that article in the show notes because I remember that article. There was a picture of you in your recliner, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My husband got okay. the photo credit on that one. Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. Okay. Keep going. So go on. Right. Um, and I think, you know, I've talked to other runners about there are some run. I mean, I, it, it's fine. I, I even kind of make fun of myself in this article. Like it is extreme, but the amount of like, uh, mental preparedness that offers me like it just I just don't worry about things so much because I'm like I've been through this before I know how this feels I know what to eat at what time and to some it may seem like an extreme <laughs> sort of I think but it just it has helped me so much to just like not have to worry about that on race day to know that I've practiced it so um yeah I think that that you don't have to take it to such an extreme level but even if you just think through a little bit like the, the fact that the timing is going to be different and that you might have to adjust some of your normal routines I think was really helpful for the Boston Marathon especially and doing and eating and doing your nutrition and doing your run a little bit later even if somebody doesn't in the recliner and, and mm -hmm. pretend they're riding the buzz, but that's uh, that's absolutely something we recommend. And, and really, it's not a crazy idea at all because, like you said, Boston is a different a different rhythm. So that's doing some of your long runs a little bit later in the morning when you've had an opportunity to eat your your pre race or pre run food and kind of feel what it feels like to be up for a few hours and waiting is 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 very important. So it's not silly at all. Mm -hmm. Um, how many you've run Boston? Is it five times, Cindy? Uh, seven times, actually. Uh, seven times. I'm sorry. I don't mean to diminish no, those two. That's okay. that's Do you have a favorite year that you ran it so far? Well, um, I mean, 2014, I would have to say, because, you know, as, as we mentioned, being there for the bombings and being there the year after that uh, was just such a celebration of running and strength and, and solidarity. It was a really incredible experience. So that, that was a highlight for sure. I don't, you, you two might feel the same way, right? Yes, we, we do. Say, the mm -hmm. comeback is, is better than the setback. And that's such a good example that that applies to a lot of situations, but that in our minds, uh, yes, absolutely. That, that feeling it, it really, the, the crowd support just carried you through. It always carries you through Boston, but that year you could just feel that everybody was just cheering for, for, for a good reason. Yeah, I still remember hearing a spectator say that day, uh, we've been waiting all year for you. And oh, I just, uh, I I was, that was great. Yeah, I, I mean, the spectators, there was something about it. You just felt resiliency all around you as you ran that course. We couldn't agree with you more that 2014 was the most special. So relatedly, you've run Boston seven times. You are a Boston expert. You've seen probably over the years, how the race though has changed. Um, what are your feelings about the race now that the, the elusive BQ has become such a popular goal compared to when you first started running it? Um, have you found it to be a different environment? Um, you know, registrations now, there's so many 
differences between when you first started running it seven times ago. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first time I qualified was in 2007 and my qualifying time is the same now as it was back then. I know many people who've had that experience. So I have gotten older, but the standard has not, uh, has keeps lowering. So it yeah. hasn't actually changed for me. Um, uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a challenge for sure because I crossed the finish line that day and, and knew, okay, I'm going to Boston. Um, and now there are so many people who don't have that experience um, because they are close enough to their qualifying time that they're not sure if they're going to get in or not. Um, I, I think it's, it's makes it even more special when you do. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, it, it does make it harder to attain. Um, and I think that, you know, I credit the BAA. I mean, it's, it's now a really complicated situation. Like every time I try to explain to someone who's not a runner, like what it means to qualify for Boston and like how the process works, it's uh, it's a big challenge. I remember I had yes. to do it in a podcast once and in like less than 30 seconds and it was nearly impossible. But uh, but I credit the BAA for trying their best to make it a fair process. Um, and I, I hope that they kind of continue to refine it and continue to think about it. And And I mean, I'm glad that the standards have lowered because I think, you know, I know so many people who have been in that bubble of just barely qualifying and not knowing and then just missing it time after time after time. And I think that that is a really hard thing to deal with. So um, so I think that they're they're working hard at it and I, and I hope they continue to do so. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Um, you're right. We credit the BA. It's, they certainly are dealing with a lot of challenges with respect to that and doing the best they can. And I think um, we mentioned this before, but I, I very much believe that the correlation to uh, Boston becoming more popular is with social media. It mm -hmm. all kind of happened at the same time. I mean, when my first Boston was also in 2007 and um, there was, there just, it was a different environment. There was, it's just changed sort of how people pursue goals. It's, it's not a good or bad thing. It's just an observation. What do you think, Lisa? I agree. And I think also it's sort of a, 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 uh, self-perpetuating, um, you know, the, the runners get faster, the times, the qualifying times get cut down and people like challenges. So more people are, are drawn to that. You're, you're challenged. It's something you have to achieve. And I think, so it's sort of, uh, you know, it just, it, it's victim of its own success. So I think that's, that's part of it and definitely fueled by more people knowing about it and more people seeing on social media that somebody's going to Boston or they qualified for Boston. But I think because of that, more people want, because it's elusive and because you have to earn it, mm -hmm. it is, uh, it, it's attractive. Anytime you set a standard on something and make people achieve that, I feel like people rise to the occasion. So I feel like there are just more people now that want to try for that and they're working hard for it and they're getting it. And then the, the, the race is a victim of its own success in some, in some sense. But it's yeah. a great, it, it's great as a result. It just makes it more exciting and more fun. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that, you know, because it's it's one of the few, like when you think about sort of the goals that um, a runner who is not an elite can have, I mean, it's one of the few that actually does have, I guess, sort of a consequence, right? Like, um, I mean, I can shoot for a sub four hour, sub three hour marathon, and like, I feel a lot of satisfaction out of that. But then there's nothing necessarily like that I get to do because of that. But like, the idea that I get to participate in this special thing, because I've hit this time is like, I don't know. It's really meaningful and it always has been, but I think you're right that, um, that the combination of social media and also the attention that, that the race got during and after the bombings and, and how everyone wanted to be a part of that. I don't, I think that that is still continues to fuel it to this day. Yeah. I think that's a big one. I, yeah. I really do think, you know, before 2013, 
not a lot of people knew when I said I was going to the Boston Marathon to run it. They thought, okay, that's great. And then after 2013, they really understood what, what is the Boston Marathon? How, you know, what, what is it about? What, what is the Boston Marathon? And it just came into the limelight. And, and I do think that definitely more, uh, more people probably wanted to run it. More people understood what it was about and how important it is and what a, what a, an achievement it is. So I do agree that that's another, another factor, but it's been so my, my first Boston was in 2001. So like ancient days when you would only get a cotton unisex t-shirt as your <laughs> shirt, and you yeah. didn't even have to register it before you could register the week before you could get a hotel the week before for $99 a night. And it's a little, it's no, just really, it's, now they're it's, like a thousand dollars. It's, it's amazing it's now that you have to book your hotel, like right after, you know, as soon as April comes to a close and you can, as soon as you can book a hotel, you better get a hotel or you can't get one in the city. And, uh, you know, it's just, uh, the expo has grown and, um, the time, you know, when I did it in 2001, it, it was a noon start. So yeah. now we've got four waves that start, you know, a couple hours earlier. And it's, it's just amazing for me to see how much has changed over, you know, now it's almost 20 years, but uh, it's, it's, it's really, it's exciting and it's great, but uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cindy, we're really excited that we get to see you in two weeks and we will talk so much more about your book. Um, But we are so grateful that you took the time to speak with us today because we didn't know a lot of this information about you. And it's, it's very exciting to hear about the trajectory of your running as well as your writing career. And we've said this before, but we feel so fortunate to know you and that you're part of our community. And, and we just appreciate your insight. And thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight as always to talk with you both. All right. Well, we'll see you in two weeks, Cindy. Thanks again. Bye. All right. Bye. Bye thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> This podcast was produced by Lisa and Julie of Run Farther and Faster. If you'd like to reach us, you can email us at julieandlisa at runfartherandfaster.com or you can find us on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter under Run Farther and Faster. Thank you for listening.